Tracy. And this is Sheila. And we are as Wi Fat Chicks. And this week, it's going to be explicit. Uh, it's not going to be explicit for the language. It's more going to be explicit for the content because uh, the book we're discussing, The Devil's Picnic, travels through the underworld of food and drink. It deals with a lot of adult topics. So you might not want to let the kidlets listen too closely. Unless you'd like to discuss these topics with the kidlets, then please use us as a uh, icebreaker of why drugs are bad, okay? So it would be what, like <laughs> PG-13? Parental guidance uh, suggested? No, definitely R. Definitely are. Yeah, so if you're a kid listening, turn it off right now. Go back, listen to something else. Um, Katie, this means you. Okay. I recommend the sushi episode. Yes, go back and listen to some sushi. Also, the dim sum episode's pretty awesome as well. Yes, they're all pretty awesome. Go back and listen to Candy Freak, the double header. That'll... Yes, that is more age appropriate, so... And <laughs> now because we put the explicit tag on, I can swear to, because I may get yeah, excited. you're like... Oh, it won't be for language. I'm like, why the fuck not? <laughs> <laughs> so we are recording uh, in our mobile recording studio brought to you by GM. We're in the car <laughs> down by a bike path, and it's really nice and pretty to record here. We're like right off the path, so we're going to be able to people watch and be distracted while we're talking. Excellent. Yes. So. I did not read this book. Tracy did, so I will be the voice of the audience. Slacker. <laughs> I did the homework. Somebody else didn't. Ha, ha, ha. Well, it's not an electronic book, so it's no. not like I could have read it at the same yeah. time as you did. No, that was part of the problem. And I'm, I totally just meandered and enjoyed myself through this book. I didn't plow through it to give you a chance to do it, but we wanted to record about it. So, mm -hmm. And originally, we had actually picked this book up with the idea of using it for like a Halloween episode. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't not read it. And <laughs> She finished reading, uh, what was it you were reading? Um, oh, Bone Shaker. The Clockwork Century books. Yeah. And then you just kind of jumped right into that. this. Yeah, well, Bone Shaker just, I don't know, it didn't grab me that much, as much as I thought it would, but this, for, like, second page I was hooked. I was mm -hmm. like, oh my god, this is like cheesecake in literary format. So Deep fried cheesecake. <sighs> the best kind. The Devil's Picnic is by, um, it, the fellow's actually from Montreal. Terrace Gresco. Did I say that right? Yeah, I think or so. Or did I anglicize it too much? Looks good to me. All right. So he's a, a, a Canadian writer. Uh, we picked it up actually at Half Price Books. You can probably grab it there if you happen to see a copy or you can get it through uh, chapters, wherever, Amazon. You check up uh, A-Books. They may have mm. some copies. I'm going to tell you right now, this is an amazing book, even though I'm going to just rant about it nonstop <laughs> and tell you way too much about it. You really, really want to check it out because it's just, it's a fun read. It, he's a great writer. He has a really easy to read style that, um, I, I don't know. It's not heavy. It's almost like a conversational style, but it's not obnoxious. So it's like a storytelling style then. Yeah. He's very much a storyteller throughout the whole thing. Hmm. So really cool. But he, um, I love the way he breaks the book down. He literally breaks each chapter is a course of a meal. Mm. You go through seven courses all total in the book. You have the aperitif, crackers, cheese, the main course, a smoke, a digestif, digestif, mm -hmm. however you say that. I'm so phonetically challenged. Dessert, herbal tea, and then a nightcap. So I kind of like how he did the theme through the whole thing. That tickled me because it's cute. Yeah. So. It works. Um, I'm going to jump right in and just... Just like how we normally do it, stop me, ask me questions. It's going to be like the reverse of the Saki episode where I just stare and say, <laughs> I don't know any of this, talk to me. But it's going to be you doing it this time. So, 
chapter one, the aperitif, is all about the the prohibition. It's not really prohibition, but the liquor control in Norway. Mm. And I, for one, never thought Norway had tight liquor control laws. I say, liquor control, that's just holding on to your mug so it doesn't spill, right? Yeah, holding on to your drinking horn. Yeah. That's what I would think, you know? Because you think Norway, you think Vikings, you think mead, you think ale, you think, you know, pillaging and partying and drunken debauchery. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I think, right? Mm -hmm. That's what you would think, too. I would think, yeah. Well, no, they're like crazy, crazy, crazy about the alcohol control. Like total nanny state? Yes. Like, um... Remember when we read uh, Cheers, mm -hmm. the interpret history of Canada? Yeah, mm -hmm. and remember how he in there he talked about the um, how when he went to the LCBO it was like the secret shame thing. Yeah, how you had to go to the back to get it or whatever, and and they gave it to you wrapped in like plain brown paper, and you had to like felt like you had to hide it when you leave the like store. Like you were buying pornography. That's what it's like in Norway. That's weird. Yeah, you, you have to go through these like <laughs> this desk, and you have to tell them what you want, and it's that would be like weird. really crazy tight controls on wine in Italy or France mm -hmm. instead of just being able to buy it pretty much anywhere, which I think is the case. Yeah, it's and the Norwegians have gotten very creative around this. They like to go on like alcohol trips, <laughs> Well, they'll go over to other countries and buy as much booze as they can to bring back because it's much cheaper because going with the control of mm. the alcohol comes the vice tax hideous taxes exactly mm. like what they're paying i don't remember the exact amounts but what they're paying compared to what we pay in canada we're lucky <laughs> i never thought anybody would ever say those words i never thought i would say those words <laughs> i'm reading this and saying oh my god i'm glad i'm in canada when those, i buy booze those poor norwegians all they wanted to do was have a drink yeah Aww. And it's led, it's, it's a classic, um, almost prohibition-style environment because it leads to excess. It leads to crazy drunkenness. Does it lead to, like, is there a big, uh, like, underground moonshine thing? That's the forbidden drink that he's going for. Because ah. in every chapter, he's going for something that's forbidden in that culture. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's involved in it somewhere, or forbidden in many cultures. Right. So in this one, he... <sighs> I forgive me, my Norwegian sucks because it's non-existent. Um, <laughs> it's spelled H J E M M E B R E N T. I wouldn't even. Hemabrent. Maybe it's Hemabrent. Hemabrent. Well, we're gonna say Hemabrent. If we have any Norwegian listeners that would like to make fun of us, please, please send email us. us. <laughs> at gmail dot com. <laughs> Thank you. And ridiculous. Yes, and correct us with like maybe a little audio clip of the proper way to say it because I would really like to know. I don't know if we have any Norwegians. I don't know. I don't know. Well, if there's any, like, expat Norwegians in Japan or something, or China, because we have a lot of those, you know, email us <laughs> and let us know. So, but yeah, that's it's an underground um, moonshine, and pretty mm, much everybody like makes it. Like bathtub gin kind of thing. Even totally boardwalk empire. To, beyond that, to the point <laughs> where you go to the store, and they have all of the ingredients there, including, like, the extracts to be able to flavor your stuff, like certain uh. whiskeys. That's hilarious. Yes. So it's really a wink and a nod. Like, mm -hmm. if you want to actually go to the trouble of doing it yourself, yeah. they won't stop you. No, they won't. And it's... um. And I imagine certain people probably have reputations for having really good product. Mm -hmm. And other people probably have reputations for a really bad product. Absolutely. So it kind of almost regulates itself. And, and Gresco, he, he runs around meeting these people to try to find these... Uh, different types of Hyamabrent. And mm -hmm. this this fellow, by the way, he traveled for like a year to write this book. 
It's incredible. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, well, jealousy-inducing, to be honest. Yeah, I'm totally green jello right now. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody would like to pay us to travel for a year to write a book, we'll talk about forbidden stuff, too. <laughs> but um, it, it's the alcohol content of this stuff, though, is hideous. Like, way, way up there. Like 80%? Yeah, like painfully, almost like um, Everclear. Right. Or real Appalachian White Lightning. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And for those of you who aren't from the United States and you've never heard of Everclear, or maybe you don't, they don't sell it in your country, it's pretty much it's like just straight green, alcohol. 100% or is it 80% or 100%? It's like 95 or 90. I want, I want to say it's 180 proof. Yeah. It's You can light states, it on fire. Yeah. Put it that way. Oh, yeah. Without any effort at all. Oh, it's fun to play with. In fact, one of the things they do with the uh, Hema Britain here is they do stupid frat boy tricks like lighting their hands on fire with it and stuff. Because <laughs> you can't, because after you've had a couple drinks of it, you're just stupid anyway. So why not play with fire and alcohol at the same yeah. time? We almost burned down one of our porches like that. Oh, God. So, so again, I shouldn't, shouldn't share that story. <laughs> so again, kids, shouldn't be listening to this episode. Just saying. But it's... I, I don't know. I, th it was a shocking chapter. It set a great tone for the book of this is going to be full of stuff that you think you know something about, but wow, you really don't know anything about it yet. Right. Um, I also enjoyed the uh, the one drink that they do with the Hammerbrent. The one way to drink it is you put in a coin in the bottom of a cup. Mm -hmm. And then you pour coffee over the coin until you can't see the coin anymore. Okay. Then you add Hammerbrent to the coffee <laughs> until you can see the coin again. Oh my god! <laughs> That's almost as bad as the Joker's disappearing pencil trick. Yeah. <laughs> it's butt reverse. Yeah, it's pretty bad. It actually made me think of um, all the one fellow in the SCA and his turkey sandwiches. Yeah. Um, the SCA, just really quickly, uh, Crazy medieval, medieval uh, recreationists. And the one King Rurik used to make them. He had this gigantic drinking horn. I'm pretty sure it was like, what, a half gallon? I, I don't actually, know. Was no. it a half, wasn't it a quart? No. I don't, know. I don't know, but I remember it was like... It was more than half, 30 ounces, less than 64 probably. It would be like half wild turkey and like half Dr. Half Pepper. Dr. Pepper. Yeah. That was a turkey sandwich. Don't drink the turkey sandwiches. You tried it, didn't you? It was pretty powerful. It went kind of cross-eyed. <laughs> it was actually probably more like three quarters wild turkey and like a quarter Dr. Pepper. It, the Dr. Pepper was there for coloring, much like the coffee with the the Hammerbrent drink. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, that that was it. Set a really good um, tone. He also talks about how there's there's the culture of drinking is so accepted, even though mm. it's so regulated that they do this crazy thing with the high schools. Um, when you graduate, there's this like sanctioned debauchery party. <laughs> the Russifering, R-U-S-S-E-F-E-I-R-I-N-G. It's a two week long high school graduation binge that happens in May. Students wear, I'm just gonna read verbatim because it's awesome. Students wear red or blue overalls and caps are decorated with badges awarded for feats of alcoholic prowess, a beer cap for <laughs> drinking 24 beers in 24 hours, a screw top for finishing a bottle of liquor. The system is highly organized with administration at the high school, municipal, and federal levels. Tens of thousands of dollars are spent buying buses with state-of-the-art sound systems. <laughs> I just, I'm like, <laughs> the school, sanction it. Go have some fun, kids. Two weeks, don't die. Good job. <laughs> to be a high school student in Norway, except for the expense of booze. It yeah. probably cost a pretty penny. For real. So, awesome chapter. And we move right on to um, the chapter. At this point, I, I'm reading this, and I thought, it's like this guy wrote this book for us. 
Oh, no, the next chapter is that one. This one, I've looked at and said, you are one brave motherfucker. I'm sorry. Chapter two is savory crackers. And he decides, you know, I'm already on this whole, like, you know, forbidden prohibition nanny state thing. I'm going to go where everything's forbidden. <laughs> and he goes to Singapore. Oh, wow. Where everything's forbidden. You're not allowed to chew gum. You're it's not illegal. allowed to litter. Not allowed to have poppy seeds on food. Because wow. there's trace amounts of opium in it. Jeez. So he decides to smuggle into Singapore. At poppy risk of being caned, probably. Yes. Actually, technically, he's smuggling drugs on the poppy seeds. At risk of being, being thrown into prison and forgotten about. No, they have the death penalty for drug trafficking. Oh my god. Yes. That totally ups the ante. This dude's one crazy Frenchman. He's awesome. <laughs> so he decides to smuggle in these poppy seed crackers. Um, Marks and Spencer savory biscuits studded with poppy seeds. He <laughs> smuggles in a bunch of those. He smuggles in chewing gum. And he smuggles in uh, books that were banned. Like Fanny Hill. I've never really? read Fanny Hill. Yeah, it's banned there. He smuggles in a copy of that. It's still like illegal. Playboy is too. Do you just like leave it in the public library quietly and then he take gave, off? He gave it to a friend he made there. But still, it cracks me up. That is crazy. Yeah. Yeah, and he's every time he does something forbidden, he litters. He chews gum on the subway. He spills a drink on the subway. Oh. He tells you in parentheses <laughs> the fine in U.S. dollars and um, Singaporean dollars. Wow. Yeah, it was quite the expensive trip. He didn't get caught actually. But wow. It, it's so just locked down to the point. It's where... worse than high school. Mm -hmm. Like people think you have no freedom in high school. Could you imagine having to live like that every single day? Yeah. You're an adult tax-paying citizen, and you're not allowed to chew gum. That's just crazy. Yeah. Well, it's to the point that um, everyone's so repressed that they... Uh, what the kind birth of gnarly rate, stuff do they do? The birth rate's falling down. They actually don't. Yeah. He went out to some clubs, and he said it was really tame. And people were afraid to talk about certain topics in, in public because they know somebody could be listening. Is it like a total thought police kind of mm -hmm. thing? It's very Orwellian. Wow. It's actually very Orwellian. I mean, reading this, usually... I'm the type of person, and you are too, that mm. we read about a, a culture in a book, and no matter how crazy it is, we're like, I kind of want to go there and check it out. I want to experience it. I want to see that. I have no desire to go to Singapore now. Hmm. None. They just crushed it right out of No. You. No, I'm chewing gum. Oh my God, I might have a piece of chewing gum in my pocket. I'm going to get a fine. Could you imagine like how I talk, just walking down the street? I'd be arrested like that. Yeah. I don't remember if there was anything about um, swearing or not. But <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> I'd have to have one of those little keychain sound effects makers to like beat me out. Yeah. So uh, just an example of how he decides I'm going to I'm going to break all the rules. And he did. Uh, Bugus station, 9.05 a.m. Fine morning, already sweat inducingly humid. I buy a bottle of the sticky glucose drink, Lucozade, on my way to the subway. Place myself within sight of a security camera on the MRT platform, directly in front of the sign warning of a $500 fine, 305 U.S. dollars, for eating and drinking. Remembering Ovaltine, and vodka, <laughs> remembering the Ovaltine and Vodka incident in Hui Hui Tan's novel, I up in my drink, pouring it slowly over shiny spotless floors. A pool the color of a multivitamin urine spreads across the tiles. Wait. Voice cues over the loudspeaker. For your own safety, please stand behind the yellow line. That's it. <laughs> he just does crap like that the entire time he's in Singapore. Oh my god. The, the coolest thing he does, though, is um, right before he leaves, he takes um, one of the crackers, he's in one of the gardens, and takes one of the poppy seed crackers and he crumbles it up so the seeds fall into the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> They're probably not going to grow. But Mother Nature is kind of an ornery bitch. Yeah. You never know, man. There'd be a couple poppies that have been propagating in Singapore. Yeah. 
So that's his sense of humor. I want to meet him and so, buy him a beer. <laughs> no doubt, man. We need to go to Montreal. But um, again, <laughs> yes, that chapter wasn't really too much about food. The whole thing, it's more food and intoxicants, not just a food book. But that one really was more of a, just an exploration and prohibition. Mm. So really like interesting. what happens when you tell people they're not supposed to, or they're not allowed to do something? What happens when you beat down a culture? Yeah. And honestly, they're a little beat down. Yeah. And I'm sure I'll get some hate mail for saying it, but wow. I can't believe there's a country I don't want to go to on this planet. So. Well, I just feel bad for the people because yeah. I can't imagine facing that kind of repression every single day. Yeah. And there are rebels in the culture. They're mm -hmm. trying. It's not like everybody's just completely given up and gone on to the, the Brave New World mindset. Now, this is the chapter I said this dude's writing this book for us, apparently. <laughs> I, I will need your French skills. Et pois. Et pois. I think so. When you have that many S's, usually you don't say them all. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, et pois. We've heard of this cheese before. Remember the cheese? It's a raw milk cheese and it smells super funky. Yeah. And it's kind of illegal in the States because it's a raw milk cheese. Oh, yeah. And it's not aged beyond a certain point. Been, the milk has never been pasteurized. Exactly. And, and you, it's hard to get in Canada. Um, I don't remember which episode we really explored raw milk cheeses. I know we've talked about them off and on. But mm -hmm. in the United States, there are some pretty strict regulations about milk, period. It mm -hmm. is illegal in most states to sell milk that has not been pasteurized. If you are, che are a cheesemaker, like a, a hobbyist cheesemaker, mm -hmm. that's unfortunate because pasteurization kills all the good stuff in the cheese that makes it taste extra awesome. Right. And it has to do with if they would have pasteurized it at a low temperature for a long amount of time, it wouldn't kill the good little bugs in it. Mm -hmm. uh, so the milk would still be alive, but it would kill all the pathogens. However, it's much faster to raise the temperature way, way, way up mm -hmm. for a short period of time. It's more cost effective. And uh, now there's so, like ultra pasteurization, which... Uh, it's not a new thing, but we seem to be seeing it more. Mm -hmm. And that makes milk shelf-stable that you can leave it on the counter before you open it. After it's open, it needs to be refrigerated. Mm -hmm. But that's just weird. <laughs> yeah. Here's your sterile milk. Enjoy that. Now, you like, might say... Even before refrigeration, people kept the milk in a cool place. Yeah, exactly. It's creepy. Mm -hmm. I just... I don't know. I don't like milk to begin with. I, I think it tastes like ass. I think that's my. I think it's my body's way of saying you're not a person whose body plays well with this. Right. So knock this crap off, and that's why it tastes bad to me. Mm. So remember, the only time I said milk ever tasted good to me was when it was spoiled. Yeah, and you were just guzzling away. Which makes it kind of taste like yogurt a little bit because it has that same tang, and I yeah. love the shit out of yogurt. So, but just you're just letting uh, the profanity lie. <laughs> this is a, a, a double explicit episode. The book's exciting. It's getting y'all wound up. So this. This chapter is all about the Epoise. Yeah. The Epoise. And it, it's this amazing cheese that is honestly barely hanging on by a thread. Because like it's almost extinct? Well, it's still there, but um, there's a loophole to be able to get this kind of cheese in the United States. And you have to age the cheese past a certain point. The problem is that takes the Epoise past a point where it's still... Past its prime. Yeah, exactly. Like, okay, there's, not, there's no, um, it, it made it to this point, so there's no bacteria in it, so it didn't get all bloaty and gross, but it's past the prime where it would be the best flavor. I want to say it's four weeks is where it, um... But it's supposed to be eaten, like, kind of young? Yes, exactly. Four weeks is the United States, like, benchmark of this cheese cannot enter our country if it's made with raw milk, if it has not been aged for a minimum of four weeks. So, it eliminates most of the applause. Uh, this this cheese smells like 
funk. <laughs> it's horrible, making blue cheese smell like a perfumed bouquet kind of thing. You're, you're, we want this cheese. Yeah, I, I do. know you do. You want to roll on this cheese. The worse it smells, the better it tastes. <laughs> yes. So, so he goes to France, where the the Apoise comes from, because it's actually one of those things. It's like champagne. It has that that protection. Because remember how there's that. Um, yeah, it's got the, the, uh, the board. It's like a. Uh, you can't call it that unless it's from a certain place. Yeah. Like Champagne is from Champagne. Bordeaux is from Bordeaux, France. Exactly. It, the, the applause... I can't remember what the uh, government arm is that, of it, but it's like uh, the regional... It's like a regional name thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, it's 60 days. The FDA um, regulates unpasteurized raw milk cheese if it's been less than 60 days aged. After 60 days, you're good. So if you make a brie that's um, unpasteurized, you can't sell it till day 61. Mm. Kind of thing. So, uh, part of the excitement over the raw cheese milk is, uh, or raw milk cheese, is that um, there was that that thing what, back in the '90s where a bunch of people died from eating, got really sick. Some people died from eating a cheese that was uh, had some contaminants in it. Mm. The ironic part is, as he talks about later in the chapter, that actually wasn't even a raw milk cheese. But the Apois got a bad rap. It was a listeria uh, thing. And I, I was going to ask if it was listeria. Because it li- it's pretty deadly. Listeriosis. Um, it was traced back to a cheesemaker in Burgundy. And it Oops. wasn't an, an Apoisis. But um, it was actually one that was pasteurized. So they get a bad rap for it kind of thing. So... Well, you can go ahead and pasteurize it, but if it gets contaminated after it's been pasteurized, mm-hmm. there's nothing you can do about it. But because of that, that was kind of the catalyst for a lot of regulation about it. They've uh, mm. found they have a hard time making it. The one, the major, major company that used to make it, they started pasteurizing the milk. Mm. So it's not the same now. But they've opened up to be able to export to the United States. Right. So he does uh, go get a nice big chunk of it. And he apparently found the perfect way to clear out a bar <laughs> in France. That stuff stinks. Yeah, he went into a wine bar and (laughs) he had this giant thing of cheese and he's like, I can't take it back with me on the plane, so I better eat it here. So he asked, is it okay if I eat that? And the the guy there who was at the bar is like, yeah, this is great. We love cheese. So he starts offering this free, expensive cheese to these people at this wine bar, and they're all enjoying it. Until finally, like, the one fellow in the bar, one of the owners or one of the workers came over and was like, you need to do something with that because um, you've cleared my bar out. And he looks around, everyone's gone. <laughs> Only the cheese lovers were left. Exactly. Exactly. I, I do enjoy also that he really dives into some of the statistics to kind of call bullshit on a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, ultra-high pasteurization. I did bookmark this. This is so awesome. Ultra high pasture, ultra high temperature pasteurization in which milk is heated to 302 degrees Fahrenheit for two seconds, lengthens shelf life by month, but also nukes the life, very life out of milk. UHT milk doesn't go rancid. If left at room temperature long enough, it putrefies and turns black. That's disgusting. Yeah. Good stuff. <sighs> <laughs> but um, with all the, the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the FDA... They go crazy about regulating cheese. They, mm. I mean, they're very draconic about it. But the regulations for meat aren't nearly as tough. When you compare the illnesses that come from meat yeah. to the illnesses that come from cheese, it's ridiculous. Uh, oh, how many times... I, can, I can't even think of more than like one, maybe two recalls of cheese yeah. in the past 10 years. But I there's countless recalls of meat. Oh, God, bring that stuff back to the store. Don't eat it. You'll die. Mm-hmm. So, cheese, 
he said um, is much safer. Between 1990 and 2003, seafood caused 720 disease outbreaks in the United States. Poultry led to 355. Cheese was responsible for 35. But cheese is more regulated with more rules than any of those. Now, you could play devil's advocate and say because it's so regulated, that's why there were so few outbreaks. Okay. But, but what's good for the goose is good for the gander, uh -huh. let's face it. And, yeah, seafood, if you look at it funny, take keep it, like, one day longer than you're supposed to. Yeah. And he also quotes that 500 Americans die every year from listeria-contaminated hot dogs and lunch meat. Ew. But don't bring in your gourmet raw milk cheese to the United States because yeah. some gourmet may catch a cold from it. <laughs> uh, um, and another theme in the book is all about informed risk taking. Yeah. Sitting there and saying, you know what? I know that fugu might kill me, but God darn it, I'm going to eat that anyway because I want to. Mm -hmm. It's about making adult decisions and, and being responsible for your choices, which is different from just going to the counter, buying a pack of Oscar Mayer and getting something horrible illness Yeah, because it's not that well regulated. Well, so. and it's supposed to be like... Anything like the lunch meat and hot dogs are supposed to be pre-cooked. So they're supposed to be safe. You should be able to eat them mm -hmm. just out of the package, you know. And how many people have done that, especially when you're a kid? Oh, it makes me gag. I know. But your parents <laughs> would give you the raw hot dogs? No? No. Oh, my mine parents never did that. They, you know what they did do that was really weird? We would, um... Because breakfast was a big thing on the weekends for us because my parents were teachers. Mm. So we never ate breakfast together as a family except on the weekends. Mom would make a whole pile of waffles. And she'd freeze them to have during the week because they were great snacks. And uh, she would give them to me frozen. Mm. Just eat it like frozen, like a frozen treat. Huh. So I'd get, like Michelle and I would get up in the morning, Saturday mornings to watch cartoons. And she'd go get into the freezer because she was taller because she was older. And she'd pull out a baggie of like frozen waffles and we'd each take a frozen waffle and sit like on sleeping bags on the floor and watch cartoons in the morning. <laughs> this is when I was like three years old. And we'd just chew on frozen waffles. And it sounds so weird, but they were great because they weren't cooked already. They were homemade. Yeah. But I just remember that as a kid, how awesome that was. If I tried it now, I'd probably gag. That's much more awesome than the hot dogs though, to be yeah, honest. But you know, but no, I never and I had like hot dogs. <laughs> I never had like cold hot dogs like that. Yeah. So. Well, they're already cooked, so you can, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, you're There's... basically reheating them and making them crispy. Yeah. Whenever Making you them cook delicious. them. You're adding yeah. the delicious to it. Exactly. So, it, it's, um, I, I also, he's all about pointing out how to get around things. And I guess in some <laughs> states, farmers get around the raw milk ban by selling shares of their cow. Mm. You have a share in the cow, which means you can come get the milk yourself kind of thing. So, uh, some of the legislation behind some of these problems as well predates refrigeration, like common refrigeration. Mm. That makes so a lot of sense. we're fighting against a lot of background bureaucratic bullshit mm, for, for no for good raw reason. milk regulations yeah yeah I, I mean it's they've even brought up you know the idea of well how about we just put because they're worried about people with like uh, compromised immune systems and pregnant uh -huh. women well why don't we just put warnings on these these yeah. foods saying if you're an immune compromised person or you're possibly pregnant you should not consume this food we put it on everything else they put it on alcohol they yeah. put it on like for expectant mothers they put um they put it on galvanized wire. I go to the yeah. store, I go to the hardware store and buy a pack of galvanized wire to make some crappy little chainmail things because galvanized wire is so not good for that. But hey, I, it has a little label on there saying, uh, warning state of cancer, the state of cancer, the state of cancer, the state of California has determined this may cause cancer. Mm -hmm. I mean, why not? That's from the zinc, right? Yeah, from the zinc that's on it. It's just, it's crazy. Absolutely crazy. But it's, we could apparently, if you know where to go in Canada, you, they, they actually do import some of the raw milk teas. Hmm. 
So maybe when we're in uh, Montreal next, head up to Quebec, see if we can mm -hmm. pick up some stinky cheese for you. Though I do reserve the right to kick you out of the hotel room if it's too funky. <laughs> I'm sitting in the hotel hallway eating it. The Quebecois will be walking by going, Oh, good on you, Anglo. Good on you. <laughs> Go down with your cheese. So Eat in the lobby. Yeah. That that was where I said, But this guy's like writing this book for us. Then he goes to Spain to find Cridala. God, I can't say anything in this book. Criadillas? <laughs> Criadillas? Criadillas. Yeah. So, criadillas are bull balls. testicles. <laughs> yes. I'm like, they must be testicles, They're man. They're totally bull's balls. <laughs> and and it's, a, it's a delicacy. He has to try them. Mm. You know, it's one of those things, if you eat them, it'll make you virile. He goes on this now, nice... Do Spanish men actually eat them, or is it just something you feed the tourists? No, actually. Okay, I just want to make sure. Frequently, uh, he had a very hard time finding them. I'm not going to get too much into this chapter because it didn't have a whole lot in it. Mm. It was just, it was a fun read. It was um very very. Uh, Does it talk about the bullfighting at all? Yeah, a little bit. Now the and bulls when, eaten, right? Well, usually yes, but when they went through the mad cow scare, yeah, they weren't allowed to eat them. They actually had to uh, cremate them. Huh. Yeah. Well, that sucks. Yeah. But again, that stuff's not something you want to play with. Yeah. It turns your brain into cotton candy pretty much that gets wet. So mm -hmm. I, I can understand why they did that because it's not like a case of nanny stating at that point. It's a case of, holy crap, this is bad. So scary, scary stuff there. But um, he eventually does lay hands on the, the Creadias and he gets all excited because he went to multiple restaurants trying to find them. They're like, oh, we're out. Oh, we don't have any. Oh, whatever. <laughs> he finally goes someplace and if they bring them out. If you want Creadias, you have to be here before noon. Yeah. Yeah. He finally <laughs> like goes when they're some, gone, they're gone kind they're, of Yeah, thing. they're done. So he goes and he finds them and they come out and they're in these little lumps in this like sauce mm -hmm. and he eats them and he's like, oh, this isn't so bad. Okay. He's pretty good. I could, I could do this. Cause he, he's an adventurous eater kind of thing. Okay. He's a very realistic adventurous eater. I'll get back to that in a second. So he finishes them and he says, oh, these are great, but you know, they're really small compared to the ones I see in the marketplace. And that's when they tell him, tell him they're pig balls. It's the wrong season for bull balls. He needs to come back like in the spring or something to be able to get the bull's balls. So he ate the pig balls for no good reason. Well, they were still delicious, apparently. But he does talk a <laughs> They're lot They're really about... small. He's going around um, Spain with his, this friend he has, trying to find, around this town, trying to find these uh, these bull's balls. And his friends feel so bad because he's so disappointed. So he keeps like getting these bizarre things for him to, to eat. <clears throat> and uh, <laughs> he ends up eating Elvers. Oh, cool. If you go back and read the uh, Year of Eating Dangerously, you'll hear us wax philosophic about Elvers. And apparently they were delicious, but um, he felt really bad after eating them because he realized he killed like hundreds of eels. And Not they... just hundreds of eels. Hundreds of baby eels. Yeah. Hundreds of baby eels. He said they're good, but you know, he felt like he was eating a panda steak almost. Yeah. Well, it wasn't as bad as eating a panda steak, he said, but he still was like, eh, well, you know, it's... uh. There are many more other things I could have eaten and not felt as bad. There, there's a couple nice uh, lines on this, this section. There's a certain morbid, sensuous pleasure in rolling dozens of tiny bodies around in your mouth. <laughs> like I said, this dude's turn of phrase is amazing. But hell, I'd ordered the baby eels, and at $10 a swallow, there was no way I wasn't going to clean my plate. But take it from me, and it's, they're called anguillas in uh, Spain. Yeah. Anguillas aren't worth it. They may be tasty, but you're hungry an hour later. <laughs> uh-huh. 
Yeah. Uh, I can't imagine they'd be very filling. But he talks about eating some other organ meat. And you, you know how Anthony Bourdain would really just go crazy for the organ meat stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, this guy, Gresco, he, he's very much realistic. He's like, it has that barnyard taste you come to expect from organ meat. <laughs> and it's tough and chewy. Not very good. He's very much, I think, in line with our tastes. Right. On things like that. Like, you eat it if that's the culture. You eat it if you have to, but... You eat it for shock food so you can cross it off your list mm. and catch up the friends from high school who have 90 on their food list. But <laughs> you don't eat it because you like it unless you're really into that. So it, mm. it's made me appreciate what he was talking about even more because this is somebody who's probably very in line with our particular likes mm. in foods. Because, you know, I'm not a big organ meat fan. You're right. You're okay with it. I'm okay. But you I like, like baby squids, too. I like my steak and kidney pie. And my baby octopi. The smile when you cook them. <laughs> so then... They weren't baby octopuses, by the way. They're just naturally small. <laughs> she was eating baby octopuses. <laughs> she destroyed a nursery of octopuses. Oh, baby killer. So, next up we have the, uh, the smoke chapter. The Cohiba Esplendido. And that's when I say this man is writing this book for us. How did he know? Is he smoking a Cuban cigar in the United States? Even better. He, he goes to, uh, I think he might have gone to the smoke shop in Montreal we went to. Mm. That, remember the one we stopped at on the way to the, uh, the yeah. Red Path Museum? Yeah. Yeah, I think he actually, um, we went to the same one, and he buys like a killer expensive Cohiba, and he buys a couple other smaller, not so expensive um, Cuban cigars, and he decides he's taking them to the States. And he asks the cigar owner, the store owner, I'm taking them down with me. Anything I need to know? He's like, well, don't tell them you have them. But they're not going to really take them or stop you for just a couple. It's not like you're bringing a box. Right. So you're, you're pretty much safe. So he decides to go into the forbidden meal pleasure of smoking. He mm. used to be a smoker. He had, had quit. But he wanted to explore where um, smoking is pretty much very much prohibited now. And you have yeah. to say, other parts of the world are cracking down as much. But the United States is really going whole hog across the board in many cities and states to decrease smoking in public places. So he decides to go to New York first. They do ask him at the border, what do you, are you carrying any uh, tobacco? He said, oh, yes, I have a couple cigars. I have a Cohiba, not Cohiba. He's like, oh, I have a couple cigars. Oh, what, what uh, country are they from? He totally lies. Dominican? <laughs> Good man. Smart man. Lie to the American customs officials because they don't have a sense of humor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he actually, um, he fucked with the Singaporean ones a little bit. <laughs> he, like, went to a police station with chewing gum and asked them about it and everything and chewed it in front so, of them. So, I heard you're not supposed to chew gum here. It's illegal. Yeah. <laughs> he totally messed with that. But <laughs> we came to the American Customs guys. He's like, your body cavities search me. They're Dominicans, sir. Yes. <laughs> so he uh, goes to New York and he goes to the Nat Sherman store. Uh-huh. Those of you who have not checked out the cigar episode, this is kind of like a... This, this whole episode's a it's bumper. It's like a best of. Yeah. It is. It's a bumper. This book is a best of the stuff we would like, have talked about, or want to try. Mm-hmm. But um, Nat Sherman's probably our favorite cigar maker. My favorite cigar maker. Hands down across the board. I want to go to the Nat Sherman store in New York. I want to buy some cigars there. I want to sit down in their smoking lounge and have a cigar. It's the first real cigar that I really liked. You know, this is... It's special. Yeah. And he goes there. That's the first thing he does is he makes a beeline for the Nat Sherman store. And it turns out the smoking bans in New York have gotten so strict that it's one of the only places you can smoke indoors as a business now in New York. Wow. Because it's protected because it's the Nat Sherman store. 
so that was just awesome. While he's there, he decides, you know, I need to get into shape to be able to smoke these cigars and not hack up a lung. So he starts smoking cigarettes again. Oh. I'd like to point out, you don't need to do this to enjoy a cigar. We enjoy an infrequent cigar now and then. We do not smoke cigarettes. Mm. We are. It's a totally different totally mechanism. Different yes. Yeah. He will be perfectly fine. Do not take up a cigarette smoking habit to be able to smoke cigars. But he does, to his credit, he goes and stocks up on Nat Sherman uh, cigarettes, <laughs> which are a natural cigarette. They don't put any additives in it. It's just the tobacco plant. That's it. If you're going to smoke cigarettes, hate to say it, you go for something like that. You know, there's no ammonia well, added. Yeah, there's no at least stuff. there's no arsenic and everything. Exactly. It's just tobacco leaves mm -hmm. dried, diced, <laughs> or chiffonaded and rolled up into a paper. Exactly. Not good for you, but nonetheless, hey. Right. You know? Anytime you inhale something that's smoky, that's got carcinogens in it. So mm -hmm. do at your own risk kind of thing. And he's, he's there with some people from, uh, I want to say Quebec. They were French too. Mm. So, you know, they smoke too. And they're just like, we can't smoke anywhere. Oh my God. <laughs> God, it's going to be crazy when we go to Japan, if the smoking regulations are still the same way as they are. Cause like hospitals have ashtrays. Mm -hmm. like, <laughs> exactly. People just smoke everywhere. So he waxes philosophic about the fact that New York has, has totally been slashed to the bone on, on smoking. They try to find uh, smoke easies mm. and they can't even find any smoke easies. I mean, huh. it's impossible. In New York, really, there's not even like an underground culture for it. Then he uh, decides to go out west and he ends up in San Francisco area, which actually there had, I think they were one of the first cities in the States, he said, that really put the ban in place. Mm. I remember when it happened and people were protesting it and there's Drew Carey went to like a bar and smoked in the bar yeah. to protest it, even though he didn't smoke. He's like, I don't even smoke, but I'm pissed off about this. Puff, puff, puff. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and apparently on the other side of the country, it's a big joke. Uh, there are smokeasies all over the place. There's a lot of bars where it's kind of like in the know, you know, you can smoke there. Yeah. And they all kind of just like, you know, flip the finger to it here and there. And there are a lot of bars you can't and they do respect the rules, but there are still places you can go if you want to have your beverage and your preferred tobacco product at the same time. West Virginia was like that until the last year that we lived there. Just, it well, was like yeah. being in an alternate dimension, man. You just walk into the bar. Every bar was up. smoking there, yeah. And apparently they... uh did put regulations in place, but there are still places you can smoke. Mm -hmm. And I want to say like the legions are one of them because it's like a, a club. So they can get it's away with it. Club. It's a private club. And it's really because God forbid they have bingo and the old ladies can't smoke while they're playing bingo. Huh? The world will end. So, so a lot of people from what I recall seeing some of the Facebook statuses from Morgantown, some people I knew they've uh, taken to drinking in the legion because yeah. they can still smoke there. But I, I love the thing with uh, San Francisco. And he asks, he goes and talks to an inspector for public health who's one of the people who does, you know, patrolling and checking the bars out. He asks the inspector, you know, what, what, how are you letting this happen? The fellow's point blank. Oh, yeah, we know there are bars that allow smoking. We have 25 inspectors. They're each covering their own district. We have 1,100 bars in the city. Of course, there are going to be, you know, 60 or so that slip through the crack. They're smaller. They're neighborhood bars. Meh. Whatever. Like, yeah. all right, then. So... Well, I mean, the taxpayers pay for that, and you can only, the budget only covers so much. Yeah. You know, if you want to have things enforced, then you have to make sure that you have a budget for people to enforce it. And if you don't, then it's not going to be enforced. <laughs> but on one hand, it also gives, really, it, it almost proves the point of make it an option. Mm. Maybe sell a special license for it to have a smoking bar. Make it like a liquor license, because there's a market for it. 
because obviously there's a market that there are these, you know, 60 odd bars that are going to allow it to happen under the table. Yeah. Why not make some money off of it for the city? You know, say, you know, uh, $5,000 a year smoking tax on yeah. your establishment or 10000 or whatever. Make a little extra dough, be able to pay the inspectors better, hire a few more inspectors to police it. It would work out. And mm. then people would have the option because it's obvious that there's a need for both. Now, he does talk about also that uh, whenever the smoking ban went in place in New York, they everybody claimed about how it didn't hurt business and, and nothing bad came from it. Because people were predicting that bar business would drop off and everything would happen like that. Mm. And um, he did find some statistics where they, uh, the New York Nightlife Association claimed the exact opposite. That when that happened, there was a 17% drop in waitering jobs and an 11% drop in the number of bartenders. Which is a pretty direct correlation between business being down because of something yeah and it wasn't something that happened right after uh 9-11 either i mean this was yeah. well after that so they can't blame that event for being the cause of it in new york which i thought was kind of kind of interesting that is interesting but the ban on smoking has also brought up another subculture that he points out and it's um smirting <laughs> smoking and flirting ah. because now you you're creating these social gatherings of people going outside to have a cigarette and you're bringing it back to that old school 1940s, hey, do you have a light? You have yeah. a reason to have a conversation with somebody hmm. based around a, a, uh, a common... Um, habit? Habit. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say desire, but it's a common habit. Yeah. So you've just introduced the perfect icebreaker. So a lot of people are, are I guess, meeting. It's just it's a fun social thing now. So hmm. it may even be backfiring in a certain way, depending on the climate. Right. Obviously, it's not fun to do in Wisconsin and in the middle of winter. But hey, if you live in you know San Francisco, where it's fairly hospitable, mild all year round, going out to have a cigarette at the bar isn't nearly as oppressive as in New York. Right. So overall, fun chapter. I'm jealous, Nat Sherman. <laughs> oh, bastard. So then he goes to what would be Sheila's favorite chapter when she finally reads this book. Because I'm sure you're going to pick it up and check it out. Mm-hmm. The absinthe chapter. Ooh, forbidden. Forbidden. So, wow. I, I actually, she made fun of me because I went through and I was flagging things with these little stickies as I went through this book. And I think the absinthe chapter has the most little stickies of any chapter in this book. So. So? Oh, wow. I Absinthe is forbidden. Absinthe is forbidden. Um, Where it's banned everywhere but like, what, Czechoslovakia? And... Well, the, yeah, it's, kind of. It's not banned anymore in the United States and Canada? Um, at the time of the book, no, it still was. In okay. the U.S., Canada's eased up a little bit. There are in some places you can have it, but there's regulations as to how much um, fujone mm. can be in it. And I'm probably butchering that word, too. I know what you mean. Yeah. That's the psychotropic chemical. Supposedly psychotropic chemical that may or may not actually have those effects. Mm. I, I knew a little bit about absinthe before I read this, but this chapter was the best crash course ever hmm. because it is just crammed full of good information about the history of absinthe, uh, what's actually in it, why mm. it was banned. Like you were saying earlier, it one of the catalysts to banning it was this fellow who... Um, who was already a raging alcoholic. Yep. He woke up one morning, had his eye-opener of absinthe, then proceeded to pretty much drink all day. I think he drank like rum, gin... Beer, actually, everything marked right here. And then he killed his family with. Mm -hmm. It was in 1906. Uh, it was in um, it was a crime in Switzerland actually, and he drank two glasses of absinthe 
and killed his pregnant wife and then shot their two infant daughters. That was after he had downed the absence was after he had downed creme de menthe, a cognac, and five liters of homemade wine. And that was not reported in the paper about the crime. It was only the absence of consumption that was reported. So that was kind of like the scare, the red scare. That right. was or the, the satanic the panic. The exactly. That happened in the 80s. Yeah, that was what made people freak out about oh, it. Oh, God, so. no, absinthe that makes you kill, it makes you go crazy. <laughs> reefer madness, reefer madness, oh, so mad. So he, he goes and explores it. There is an absinthe museum in France. Um, hmm. I would love to check it out someday because it's supposed to be pretty cool. A lot of memorabilia, absinthe huh. memorabilia, a lot of good information, that kind of thing. There's well, a lot of... For the younger listeners, the reason why absinthe is a big deal is because a lot of the great minds of the 19th century drank absinthe, like Vincent van Gogh, uh, Henry Toulouse-Lautrec. You got like a lot of artists, people that were big into the Impressionist movement, drank yeah. a lot of absinthe. Now, I, I love this line about actually uh, van Gogh and Toulouse-Lautrec. In the collective memory of the French, absinthe turned Paul Verlaine from per, uh, Parnassian genius to Latin quarter bum, sent Henry Toulouse Lautrec to the sanatorium and convinced Vincent Van Gogh that a severed ear might make a charming keepsake. Again, great turn of phrase. This yes. dude's just full of that. But uh, he goes into what makes absinthe authentic. And there's a lot of discussion about it. And it's really kind of no such thing because the original absinthe actually came out of Switzerland. And it came from. Um, well, the wormwood, which is supposed to be the ingredient that brings in the thujone. Mm. And it's, um, we think of absinthe as being a green liquid. Mm -hmm. The real stuff, the original stuff back in Switzerland was actually blue. It, would, it was called le bleu, and it would actually have a blue like tinge to it. Oh my God. Now, one of the things, you know, you're going to find it, and it could be of varying qualities and types. The real stuff had a very high alcohol content. And when you would do the, um, there's a word for it too, where you would pour the water into it because mm -hmm. you would pour the water over the sugar cube and that would sweeten it. Yeah. When the wa it hits the water or the water hits the absinthe, it turns cloudy. Right. That means you're drinking something that really is absinthe and you're not just drinking some horribly nasty green vodka with right. bad flavoring in it. And that also makes the, the um, absinthe taste better. Yeah. It's kind of like uh, adding a little bit of water to open up your scotch. You yeah, really you're not need gonna to drink. do that. Absinthe just straight up, you need to add the water to it. Yeah. I'd always figured it was just like an herbal liqueur kind of thing. I guess that is what it is, but... Uh, yeah, it dates back to... I want to say the early 1800s is when it first really came out. So we're not talking about something that ended up being a, uh, you know, an old school medieval thing. This is right. a fairly new... It's not an ancient beverage by any stretch. No. And they've tested it and really... What caused the hallucinations could just be the varying qualities of God knows what was put into the different absence being manufactured. Yeah. But the Thujone, it really doesn't do much. Doesn't really do anything. It really does nothing. It's all kind of myth and hype. So it's kind of like how people tell you, I don't know what, you can get high from smoking banana pills or something. Yeah. It's like that. It, it's really... <laughs> Which you can't. Different. Yeah. Yeah. Not that so. I've done it, but it doesn't work. <laughs> By the way, the Absinthe Museum is in Auvers-sur-Ois, and it's a village that's actually part of Paris's northern suburbs. Oh, interesting. And uh, you know you're there because an oversized spoon shaped like the Eiffel Tower and bolted to the houses up a floor announces it. 
So that, <laughs> just like that imagery as well. Going back to the whole, you know, what makes absinthe so forbidden and ooh, scary. Mm. It actually wasn't necessarily the wormwood, which we all think of the, the thujone. It's um, the high alcohol content it was very unique for its time. Mm. You didn't usually have something that high alcohol content. We're talking about yeah. Europe being, you know, all about beer and wine and things because they were drinking alcohol all the time because that was the safe thing to drink. And he actually goes into that, which we remember from the coffee book. Right. Was how Europe was, until the Age of Enlightenment and coffee consumption went up, Europe was mostly in an alcoholic haze. Right. And there is some light speculation as to, was the introduction of coffee and tea into the European culture somewhat partially responsible for the Enlightenment? Because it gave people a buzz. It got mm -hmm. them... It galvanized their thinking. Well, it, yeah, because they weren't drunk anymore all the time. Yeah, because you were drinking alcohol constantly. I'm sure they had great tolerances, but nonetheless, yeah. And it, it, a lot of the stuff was small beer, where they'd take the grains and they'd just they'd uh, mash the beer, and then that would be the full strength beer. And then they'd take those grains and mash it again, and that would give you a three percent alcohol. And even women and children drank that. Mm -hmm. You know, there was always a a jug of small beer on the table because that was what was safe to drink, right? Exactly. And uh, one of the points that he makes is that people were drinking 60 milliliters of absinthe at a go at 68% alcohol. Wow. On empty stomachs as aperitifs. Whoa. Yeah. No wonder you're seeing all kinds of crazy stuff. Come on. Yeah. Really now? Well, especially since the highest level of alcohol is probably around 40%. Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to get mm -hmm. it up without modern um, manufacturing mm -hmm. techniques. Yeah. You can distill, but distillation, again, eh, kind of hit or the miss. The strongest barley wine is usually tops out around like... 15? Yeah, I'd say 15, and 20%. That, that's hard. You have to have particular strains of yeast to be able to get it there so it doesn't There's all off. different conditions that you have to propagate for it to actually get to that high level. Yeah. I mean, the highest wine is probably like, what, 12, 15%? 20. 20%? Yeah. Oh, ice wine. Ice wines can get up to 20. You can get a wine up to, up to the 18s and 20s. It's not so good. But you can get it there with fairly normal manufacturing processes. But again, mm. you need to have the right yeast. You have to know what you're doing. The uh, first written recipe for absinthe does date back, by the way, to 1794. So again, we're talking about a fairly modern drink in mm. the grand scheme of the history of booze. Yeah. So. Considering beer and wine have been around for over 2,000 years. It's mm -hmm. been around longer than the written word. So, Yeah. And uh, they, he goes to Switzerland to find absinthe, the real stuff, the good stuff, which is mm. all bootleg because you can't really make it, the good stuff there. Yeah. And he goes, it's just like in the first chapter, he's running around trying to find all this bootlegged booze. And he finds all these different types of absinthe and everyone's like, oh, go see her. Go see him. They have the good stuff. <laughs> right. And again, that's a fun read because he's running around getting all this crazy alcohol. He goes to this uh, like village party where people are just going off their rocker on it. Uh. He's having a blast in general. Uh, I again, I want to try some decent absinthe at some point, but I want to try it right, especially after reading this and seeing how you have to to pour the water and do it right. And if it gets cloudy, you're on to something that's at least supposed to taste like what it's supposed to to be right. or was supposed to be at one point. It's like how um, ouzo and uh, a rock will both turn cloudy whenever you pour water with it. Exactly, it's the exact same uh, effect, pretty much. That's right. what you're looking for. So that was pretty cool. To, at that point, I want to say the book peaked, and I'm not saying the rest of it wasn't good, but that was just such that an awesome chapter. It's very, very hard to follow. But he does a good job with the rest of it. We're up to seven here. We only have nine areas. And he goes on to uh, chocolate. Chocolate. He makes a great case for it being a drug. 
or caffeine in general, right? Obviously, is a drug. But he makes a great case for coffee and uh, chocolate, which are related, right? Kind of to to being a drug. He does go off a little bit on a a thing about um, addictions, and he, he, you can tell he's kind of a libertarian mindset on this right. one. But he uh, he compares what is actually a clinical criteria, the seven criteria for dependence, mm-hmm. for um, what psychiatrists would use to determine if somebody's dependent on something or something's a dependent chemical. A chemical creates dependency. And he says, oh, let's see if uh, caffeine, which is in chocolate, hits this criteria. So the first one, tolerance. In other words, you can build up a resistance to it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Withdrawal. Do you have withdrawal if you don't get it? You get a yeah. wicked caffeine headache if it's pop or coffee that you're used to drinking? Mm-hmm. Substances taken larger amounts than intended. Sure. How many people have been like, oh, I had way too much coffee today? Yeah. Always. Or I shouldn't have eaten the whole chocolate bar if it was one of the big ones. Persistent desire to cut down. You're hmm. always trying to cut back on how much chocolate or how much coffee you're consuming. Hmm. Always. A great deal of time spent in activities necessary to obtain, use, or recover from the effects of the substance. <laughs> okay, if you're waiting in line at a Tim Hortons or in a drive-thru right now, that's a yes. Yeah. Important social, occupational, or recreational activities are given up or reduced. So, I can't do that filing now. I have to go on a Timmy's run. Uh-huh. How many times have I heard that? Uh-huh. Or I'll do it when I get back. Use is continued despite knowledge of having a persistent or reoccurrent physical or psychological problem likely to have been caused or exasperated by the substance. That one's arguable. It can cause insomnia, but these health effects are small. But nonetheless, it can do it. And I, I side less on the arguable side on that to the yes on it. Caffeine is a substance to, on which you become dependent. It's a drug. It's a real honest-to-God drug across the board. Which opens up the, if you're going to regulate beer and wine and cigarettes, and they have their effects, which are similar to those. Mm-hmm. Why isn't caffeine Why regulated? isn't caffeine regulated? Any or uses... if you're not going to regulate caffeine and chocolate, then the rest shouldn't be regulated either. Mm-hmm. Well, he also um, uses that to segue into the, because he's talking to the, the, the clinical fellow, and he's like, so because caffeine's in chocolate, could we say chocolate's a drug? I'm like, oh, yeah, definitely. Because hmm. all of the other fun things that go around with chocolate. So it's um, it, it's a fun little chapter. It's it, hard to follow. It had a hard time following absinthe. And then the, the next chapter is something that I honestly, I, I was not familiar with at all. This is one where I kind of scratched my head. And it's uh, the, the coca plant. The cocaine and Coca-Cola? Mm-hmm. The plant where cocaine comes from, the leaf mm. where you, you process that to get cocaine, that plant, um, he goes to Bolivia, he goes to South America, and he goes exploring this. Because when you're down there, people chew it. They, they yeah. suck on it in their, their cheeks. I say it's almost like it's a chewing tobacco, because they just kind of mm-hmm. fold it up. And they do this with betel nut, too, which is a, a nut that comes from trees, and it has um, intoxicating properties, yeah. where they'll just keep cramming it in, you know, with it. When the juice runs out on that one, they just yeah. cram some more in, kind of. But and it's got a very mild effect. Mm-hmm. It's nothing near cocaine, no, but you no. can see if you refine and distill it. But the, the beetle nut, that dyes your teeth. Oh, yeah. And it this turns into little stumps. This doesn't, and this has virtually no other side effects, except maybe your gums will get tender. Uh-huh. But to use it, you have to put this, like, powder on it to, to break it out. It's like an alkaline substance mm. that you sprinkle on it, then you fold the leaves up and put it in your cheek. I wonder if they discovered that at the same time that they discovered the alkaline thing to unlock the nutrition in corn. I don't know. And I was thinking the same thing when I read that. I was like, oh, might be connected. Hmm. So 
it's a fascinating chapter because I knew nothing about it, but pretty much they run into the same thing with that as to we run into with uh, marijuana about how it's, it's illegal and there's a movement to decriminalize it, not legalize it because the, uh, the one proponent makes a great case of if we legalize it, that brings in big agriculture and Mon uh, we don't want Monsanto and those guys involved in it. There's a little mm. Monsanto bashing, which made me love the book even more. <laughs> that is true though. But great point. I can see the point. We don't want to legalize it because we don't want it to become commercial. We want to decriminalize it so you can grow it yourself and enjoy it. Yeah. And the theme in this chapter he brings in, besides talking about how awesome these leaves were, is um, pretty much that almost all of our drugs that we use, they go back to a plant form. Mm. And when we criminalize the less harmful plant versions of it, we, it, we just make it as bad as the harmful processed versions of it. And he does some speculation on to if we were to say decriminalize things that are in their natural states. Like all the processing you have to do is dry them. And reallocate those resources that we use to pursuing those objects, or rather pursuing them in a legal ma manner, to controlling the stuff that's really dangerous, right. would we be better off as a society? He makes a great point, yeah. honestly, because you think of all of the, legal, the illegal drugs that you can just grow them, pick them, and use them. Yeah. It's a good point. Yeah, and really, if you're going to spend resources on curbing what people put into their bodies... I'd rather it be spent on, like, heroin, methamphetamines, mm -hmm. things that ruin people's lives. Mm -hmm. That's just my personal opinion. And he also brings up that the coca plants, where the Coca-Cola formula comes from, it has it is processed to remove the things that would make it very fun indeed. Mm -hmm. At one point, Coca-Cola did try to completely move away from that and go to an artificial extract that wouldn't involve the coca plant at all. And that's where we got new coke from. Wow. That was an wow. attempt to go with an artificial uh, coca extract. Did not work. Everybody hated it. They went back to the importing these leaves by the ton, processing them in New Jersey, of all places, to remove the, Weird. the fun things from it, and then using what's left for the flavors. Yeah. So, But the, the effects that you get from it, he says you definitely feel them, but it's not... Is it just like a mild euphoria? Or? No, it's like a mild... Um, makes everything fascinating because when he, he decided to sit down a really like hardcore he could feel it right away when he was doing it before but he sat down and decided to just watch a movie and, and suck on these leaves mm -hmm. and he was watching I think it was Air Force One he's ah! like this is the most fascinating movie in the world oh my god this is great <laughs> this is awesome that's hilarious yeah he's just losing his mind over this movie he's like wow these leaves are awesome <laughs> they make even crappy movies amazing yeah yeah it, it was pretty cool that doesn't surprise me a whole lot because the people that usually use those leaves live in crushing poverty where they have to do all kinds of manual labor. Uh-huh. So they do it to alleviate mm -hmm. and escape <laughs> their circumstances. And he also goes into the same thing where he did uh, about how almost like red herrings or not mm. red herrings, red scares. Yeah. Sa uh, satanic panics mm -hmm. are what were catalysts to leading to some of these substances being banned. And he talks about... Um, that opium was first banned because they thought it was a Chinese conspiracy to addict the white youth of California in 1875. Or, um... So it has less to do with the actual properties, more to do with the racism... Exactly. ...and prejudices of the era? Some of the first cocaine bans came out of a fear of having, um... In the, in the South, in the 1800s, early 1900s, a fear of having black men rape white women. Yeah. It's those kinds of things that he's fine. He's digging this up and saying this is the catalyst for it being banned. For marijuana, they just had to keep throwing all kinds of crap at it until they could get some stuff to stick. I think what eventually stuck was like the Mexican angle. Yeah. 
Exactly. And, uh, well, it didn't help that William Randolph Hearst wanted uh, to put the hemp producers out of business because... Yeah. Because his newspaper was printed on newsprint. And then they turned around and flipped it in the 50s to the whole communist scare because you had so many um, youth. So like many counterculture. Of the, youth, the counterculture was heavily involved in marijuana, mm -hmm. which gave the authorities the perfect angle to say, look at what it causes kind of thing. But it's just people that have that way of thinking mm -hmm. do exactly. that. That's not making them think that way. Yeah. It was... Um, it was a good chapter. It was really heavy. The last mm. two chapters in this book are incredibly heavy. The first seven are a light, fun read. The rest mm. of it, wow. Hmm. So then we go to the last chapter, which I was so not expecting to close the book on. I'll uh, go to the nightcap. And when I got to the nightcap, I opened the name of the chapter and it says, Penobarbital Sodium, The Last Sip. I'm like, wait, I know that technical name. Oh, my. Oh, so he's not talking about, um, you would almost call it the modern day hemlock. Mm. It is um, a beverage that you would only ever take once because it will kill you. It's pretty much the same thing that a vet would use to maybe put down a large animal. Okay. And it's also uh, considered one of the best ones to use for assisted suicide. And he's talking about a group in, um, excuse me, <clears throat> Switzerland. Uh, Digna, Dignatus is the group and they're an international uh, euthanasia organization mm. where you can pay the fee and you can go to Switzerland and it's literally the last trip you take. Mm. You go into the building, you don't come with any luggage and you don't come back out. Wow. Um, the, the guy who runs this, he's not Kevorkian. I actually have a lot of respect for the fellow he was talking to who set this up. He tries his damnedest to get people not to commit suicide. Right. He he's like says you can't talk people out of committing suicide, but you can remind them what there is in life. And he's actually yeah. successfully talked many, many people out of this organization's services. They are a completely not for profit group. They um he the, this fellow actually lives on a pension. He gets no money from it. The funds that come into it only solely go to, to supporting it. Mm -hmm. There are some loopholes in the law in Switzerland that let this occur and be able to take place. Every time somebody does this, there's an investigation by the police because there has to be. Right. And, but they've never been found of any guilty of any wrongdoing. I want to say this is the group that um, Sir Terry Pratchett may have signed up with. Possibly. Once he found out he had that, that particular form of Alzheimer's. And those of you who aren't familiar with Sir Terry Pratchett, probably one of the best fantasy authors of, of our, well, previously our, not our generation, the generation before us. Mm -hmm. The man's just a comedic genius. He's written the, the Discworld series. He's gotten, what, 40 books, 50 books in it? Oh, yeah. It, he's just prolific. He's hilarious. Um, and he also recently found out in the past few years that he has a particular form of Alzheimer's that is very fast. Um, very brutal. Very brutal. Like, basically, you'll be sitting there infantized. Yeah. You will completely regress you won't be you anymore. Yeah. And there was a documentary about euthanasia, which involved him where he's decided to sign up with a group for this. And I want to say this is the one he signed up with, but don't quote me on that one. Go look mm. it up yourself. Um, and I also refer to him as Sir Terry Pratchett because he has been knighted. And I love the fact that um, the Queen of England, the monarch of England, she they have this in place to knight people who are very influential with English culture. And the man is, again just a genius mm -hmm. his work is just fabulous so it made me so happy to see him be knighted because he's really worked hard as a, as a fantasy author so it's it's 
quite a chapter. Um, it's a heavy read. It would definitely brought me down at the end of the book. <laughs> like, whoa, oh, wow. Yeah, that's... But there's no other good place to put that. No, and, and you know, if he's exploring all kinds of forbidden consumptions, it is the perfect poetic way to end the book. Everybody's thoughts on assisted suicide are different. I know there's a continuing debate in the States and Canada about mm -hmm. it. In Canada, it's still illegal. I want to say he said it's a 14-year sentence, or up to a 14-year sentence in the state. It's It varies states by state. Um, there's a lot of dispute about, is it kinder to have assisted suicide, or is it kinder to have the uh, DNRs, like in the Terry, uh, Terry Schiavo case? Yeah. Because that's a, it's a cruel way to go. You yank your feeding tube, it's a slow, slow decline. Right. Whereas this would be just like going to sleep. It, I imagine yeah, that it is, you know, if you take that amount of tranquilizers, then it, it's, you would just drift into unconsciousness and then your heart would stop or yeah. you'd stop respirating. I'm not sure which one would happen first, but yeah, it, it's, um, he gets some details in there. It's one of those ones. Again, everybody's opinions are personal on it mm. and nobody can really make that decision until they're in that place. Oh yeah. I know personally me, I want to go down swinging so hard and so fast that I'm going to land like three shots on the devil's chin before I realize I'm gone. Mm. But then again, I've never been in that much pain before that I wouldn't know what, what, what decision would I make then? So I, I can't say, but it's thought provoking. To very, say very thought provoking. The whole book, honestly, from beginning to end, even with the end that it has is an absolute joy. To it read. seems like it makes you question everything that you think, you know, yeah. This is the kind of book that I I wish it had been around back when I was like in my late teens to read. Because mm. it would have been even more thought-provoking when the whole world was so new then. Yeah. It's it just, he did a great job. He's written some other books. I mean, I he's become, going to be one of my favorite authors, I think. I would love again to go to Montreal and run into him and get him to sign it. That'd be awesome. Because it's just so good. This is probably going to be my find of the year when we do our end of year episode. What thing really did you like the most? Unless something else pops up in the next six months, this is it. So anything you want to ask me about it? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I pretty much jumped in the entire way. Yeah. So it's it's a decent read. I mean, it's length, it's 300 some pages. So if you want to plow through it, you can do it in a couple of days. If you want to leisurely enjoy it like I did, it'll be about a week. But definitely check it out. So, this is Tracy. And this is Sheila. And we are Zvifat Chicks. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this Zvifat Chicks podcast. Please add us as a friend on Facebook and or follow us on Twitter. You can email your comments, questions, or suggestions to Zvifatchicks at gmail.com. That's Z-W-E-I-F-A-T-C-H-I-C-K-S at gmail.com. Our theme music is Hot Swing by Kevin McLeod. Our podcasts, like Mr. McLeod's music, are protected under a Creative Commons attribute copyright. You can make copies of our shows and share them with friends. Please make sure that credit is given. Thanks for listening and have a great day.